Hey everyone, welcome back to our next study in the encounter. Today is our lesson for January 16th. It's lesson number seven. And our scripture selection is coming from John chapter two, verses 13 through 25. Our memory verse is John 2, 19, which says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Before we get into our conversation today, let us have our prayer for illumination. Almighty God, without your spirit, we make a mockery of the faith. We become self-serving and manipulative. Open our eyes to the glory of the church. Help us to see the church as a house of prayer for all nations. Amen. Awesome. And amen. Yeah. Hi, Chris. How are you today? Um, I am very well. I uh, awesome. am hoping that my helper here stays good. I'm, I'm sure he'll be fine. He's we'll cute. He can, he can lay there on the floor and look adorable because that's what he's good at doing it. Right. Um, sure. Yeah. Maybe. So, yeah. <laughs> um, new year. Um, so it started off pretty well, I think. Um, lots of good things yeah. coming around the corner for you, for the denomination. And so, yeah, anyway, that's where I'm at. Awesome. I'm very excited. I've had my uh, first week in the new position, um, getting to meet a whole lot of people, at least by Zoom, um, have some great conversations. I'm really excited about um, some of the opportunities that are coming up and ahead. So um, if you're following along with us, please you know, keep checking back because we've got a lot of great stuff coming down the pike. I'm really excited about some opportunities that will be available for everyone else um, that we have in the works right now. So super excited about that. Very good. And I don't know where everybody else is that's watching this today, but as we're recording this, it is snowing like crazy. We're having, we're having a beautiful, beautiful snow. We are. And I'm very thankful to be inside where it's warm. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Oh, goodness. Okay. So John, this is where we are today. We're continuing the journey through John. Um, and the scripture today is one of, I won't say hotly debated, but just a good conversation piece. There's um, a lot of stuff in here. There really is a lot of stuff in here. This, this scripture about Jesus having the zeal for the, for his father's house and, um, the events that took place there have often come up, I think in Sunday school conversations, like, do you think Jesus was really mad? Do you think he was really angry? How do we, how do we look at that? You know, again, the humanness versus the divine nature of Christ. Um, and I think Kip starts our lesson off great with this introduction, talking about different rules, like what did you teach your children how to behave or um, what they could or could not do within the church house? And how did you react when they, when they didn't behave the way that you had anticipated them um, to behave? And how does this then work into our conversation today? So let's start off with Chris, what were some of the things your parents taught you? Like, what did you do at church? You, you, uh, I'm like everybody else. You, you were quiet, you know, worst case scenario, doodle, um, best case scenario, pay attention. Right. And, um, one of the things, uh, that I, I distinctly remember, uh, in church, because when I was a youth pastor, those beautiful two, three years that I was, um, sure. 
and the you know 12 13 14 year olds you know they were there for the youth stuff more so but we were a small church so everything centered around the worship service so like you'd have your sunday school but they didn't have any separate place to go during the adult worship they they had to come in and right and and a lot of times i remember they were just lazy and they didn't want to stand up when the songs were sung or stand up you know they just want to sit down and and i thought that was so disrespectful i always hated that anyway i made them sit behind we had a um lady in our church that was 97 98 at the time walked on a walker you know whatever but and, and it was a it was a thing for her to stand up but when mm-hmm. it was time to stand up she took everything in her being to get up and she stood and and i remember you know knocking one of the kids on the head and be like if she can do this you can do this right and and so then they started standing and so i guess I think that's the same with my parents or with any of my kids. It should be respectful, you know, sure. whether, you know, that's, that's the big thing. That was a big thing for me, I guess. Right. When I was growing up. I think when my kids were little and I'm sure when I was little too, the big thing was crawling under the pews. Nope. You know, never did that one. Of course we had, we, I always attended like really small churches. And so that was like the fun thing to do. And as, as a little, little kid, you don't, you don't realize like how embarrassing that is for your parents. <laughs> it wasn't until my kids were that age that I was like, Oh my goodness. you know, That was awful. And they never so do this at home. To I don't your know. Toddler, like sneaking under the pews, you know, crawling under the, the woman in front of you, who's wearing a dress, like crawling right in between her legs. And you're like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Give me my kid back. You know, it was terrible. Yeah. So, um, I think, I think the same, it was, you know, to sit still and be quiet and to be respectful. And, um, we always had like church things to do, I guess though, like the coloring book and the colors, quiet activities that you could do in the pew. But then as you got older, those activities disappeared and your attention was required during the entire worship service. Um, and of course, I went to small churches, like I said, so we didn't have like a separate youth gathering. It was the youth were involved in the, in the main worship service. Um, and so that was just respectful thing to do. So I can't imagine somebody just like getting mad in the middle of service and yelling and, and turning tables over and creating a whip (laughs) and driving people out the door. Um, that that had to be quite an astonishing sight for the good Jews of the day. Um, not just the leaders, but just the people, um, which is something, you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine about this convert about this, uh, happening one time and how upsetting would this scene have been for people who have traveled miles upon miles upon miles to worship and to pay their temple tax and to bring their sacrificial offering during the Passover. And then to all of a sudden have that moment that you've traveled perhaps even days for just completely disrupted. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. But I, so the danger is, is that you, um, I think I would rather have someone really passionate about worship than I would somebody who's faking it and being polite actually as a pastor 
I, if somebody's overcome with a religious zeal that something's not right or something must be done, fire away, baby. Like, sure, sure. I truly mean that because I've, in seasons of the church I pastored at, there were some seasons where I think people were just going through the motions. And then there were people who were not satisfied with the way things were. And it was when people were not satisfied with the way things were that we, we, we began a new cycle of, of growth or whatnot. And now, whether you like throw a hymnal at the preacher <laughs> uh, during the service, I don't know, but I, I really hope that's the, that's also the danger that I, I thought about with my kids when, you know, how to act in church. I don't want them to become robots and ignore and just get through an hour um, respectfully, just so we we're not the cause of, of concern of disruption sure because i really want it to be something in which they have a passion about and i think that's what um that's what that's what jesus had he was uh very passionate about things yes so and 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 i think that's good i i do think that's good i agree i think that you know this whole in the middle of that page on 44, the introduction, um, he says, what would his mother say of him that day? You can almost hear her say, Jesus, use your inside voice. (laughs) And I kind of giggled at that because I can see like, especially today where I have my grandkids here with us all the time. And when they get really loud, that's what I say. I'm like, no, no, use your inside voice, use your inside voice and quiet them down. So it's, that's kind of a, a humorous thing to imagine, you know, Mary saying now, Jesus, use your inside voice. We don't talk that way. And the other yes. thing, so the other thing he brings up in the introduction is just the behavior of Jesus as being like over the top. But I mean, who, who says it? he was zealous, like, right. Yes. And, and, and we're in a world to where because of certain events that have happened with like quote unquote religious fanaticism, or we use the term zealousness in, in a negative way when it comes to our religious, but like Jesus was a religious fanatic zealot. That's what he was. Yeah. And, and in some ways that just, when we say that it has a negative tone, but if you think about it, St. Francis of Assisi was a religious zealot. He was a fanatic. He just did it right. Uh, and so if fanatic or zealous means important or um, passionate, then we should all be religious, uh, zealous fanatics. We just need to do it right. And that's so Jesus was confronting bad religion, um, which technically he was, you know, the, he was supposed to be the source of the worship. So when someone mistreats you or mistreats your name, you get angry about it and righteously right. so. So there's that too. Um, Yeah. I think it's, we forget the the passionate side. I think we've been talking about this with the humanness and the divinity of Christ that we, we kind of put off the, the humanity of Christ. And for whatever reason, Jesus in our modern day has morphed into this just peace, love, chill, version of who he really was and we forget about the passion that he had as you said the zealousness that he had for his father and the work that he was doing here and confronting bad religion and this this is that moment of display so when we talk about anger um because i know a lot of times this comes up we picture jesus just 
just mad, you know, and I don't know if it's really anger as much as you said, it's passion. He's just so passionate for his father's house that he is, he's overcome with this passion at this moment. And just, you know, saying, you can't do this here. This is, this is not what this house was meant for. It wasn't meant um, to be a den of robbers and it wasn't meant to be a place of trading. It was meant to be a place to worship. Yeah, and they turned it into say, something that it wasn't meant for. I, I'm not going to say that somebody shouldn't be angry. I mean, scripture, you can have sure. righteous anger. And and hopefully, in some sense, your anger comes from, from a great desire to see God glorified and human beings right. Like, I think somebody should be righteously angry when persecution is happening. Yes. Again, I would rather somebody be absolutely, I mean, sometimes people go over the line, but um, I would rather see somebody absolutely angry about something than just not care about anything. Yes. And yeah. so, but again, I, I think part of the training, part of the church, part of what Christ does, part of learning how to be in church is to channel those emotions to God for a redemptive purpose. Right. But I passion, anger, if it's called for, go for it. <laughs> sure. Be passionate, be passionate about what you what you believe and be passionate about Christ. You know, that's, that's important. So that really kind of leads us into the historical setting of why, why is this so significant? What did you, what did you think about this section? Um, So Kip brings up something that, that probably needs to be acknowledged is, you know, the placement of these Mm -hmm. happenings. Okay. So like, and I think Kip brings it up. We're, we're stuck in our tradition that everything that we say or do, or if we give testimony, our culture is one that's the who, what, when, why, where, how, just the facts, man. And that's just, that's our culture. And, and, and that's, that's the way we grasp truth and how we verify evidence. Uh, John's culture was, was not our culture. And so I think it's very allowable. And we've said before that John is narrating truth and he's using the events of Christ's life to do that. And, and I think he, there's probably more than one, one place where he might take liberalities and placing a story here or there, but that's okay. That's what, yeah. And Kip does a really good job. Uh, he quotes Karen Lewis, Carolyn Lewis, um, in the, uh, I guess third full paragraph on 45 and just says it introduces the conflict between Jesus and the U S establishment early on in the gospel. Um, Mm -hmm. now I'm also not offended if, and I don't know why it couldn't happen. Like Jesus oftentimes repeats himself. It could happen twice. Um, it could have happened twice. Like he goes in, I'm starting here. And then he goes in the last time and he says, I tried to tell you. Right. Um, but either way, uh, I think the point of the story is, is that, um, Jesus is the new temple. We're, you know, mm-hmm. switch into a new, mm-hmm. new thing there. Yeah. I'm with you. I really appreciated that Kip pointed this out because like you said, in our culture, that's not how we tell stories. We like to tell stories in a chronological setting. This happened first, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And that's not necessarily true when we're reading scripture because that wasn't part of their culture. The, the chronology of it wasn't as important as the point of the story right. and however you needed to move pieces around to create a good flow for that point was, was their cultural. 
either way it is not something to lose a whole lot of confidence about no that's what i'm trying to say no exactly um i think you know, he puts that in here. He said the timing of the stories is largely irrelevant as it doesn't diminish the impact of the event itself. Um, you know, John was making a point and that, and that was the thing, um, you know, cause here we are Passover. I mean, this is, this is interesting that we have this Passover event happening here. Of course, towards the end of John, we have the final Passover meal, uh, with Jesus, presenting himself as the ultimate lamb of sacrifice. Um, but he also brings up this really good point. Cause we talk about the money changers, like what were the money changers doing? We don't always understand that in order to pay the temple tax, they had to pay in the shekel. So the Greek coinage and the Roman coinage were not accepted. So they had to exchange that for the shekel that was accepted at the temple. And of course your money changers, just like money changers do today, I would like to point out there's always a fee for tra- transaction from one currency to another currency. And if you've ever traveled um, overseas uh, or outside of this country, you know that there are exchange rates that the dollar goes for so much somewhere else, uh, but then there's always an exchange fee that's added on. The problem was that these money changers were doing exorbitant. more yeah. an exorbitant fee. You know, it wasn't just a little fee. It was a lot fee um, to, to change that over. So that was, that was the big problem with the money changers. And then of course the animal inspectors, that was another great thing I think kept pointed out in this section was that, you know, people would bring, I mean, can you imagine, of course we can't imagine walking for days on end to get to somewhere to worship God, yeah. you know, uh, half the time we have a hard time driving 15 minutes to get to get to where we need to worship God. But then they brought their animals with them. And when the animals were inspected by the temple people, they were like, eh, it's got a spot. You can't use this one. You're going to have to go over there yeah, and well, get a different one. It might not even be that they brought them with them. I mean, it's a lot of times. Yeah, some people didn't. Just bought them they there. They purchased the animals there. Right. Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, so here's a, so, so again, none of that. The money changer thing, that wasn't a problem. The inspector, that wasn't the problem. It was the exorbitant amount. Yes. that they could just do. I've got a, one of the, I was hot. I was so hot. So, okay. Back in 2008, I moved up here to Paducah. I had a U.S. bank account back in Nashville. Then when I moved up here, bought a house and I opened up another account for some reason, I forgot why. Anyway, I had a debit card that was linked to the um, bank in Nashville. And then I had a debit card that was linked to the bank here in Paducah, both U.S. bank, you know, whatever. Anyway, I went shopping one day, this is 2008, 2009. And uh, I used my debit card with the one linked here in Paducah. And then later on in the day, for whatever reason, I used the debit card and I used it as a debit card for the one linked in Nashville. I got my okay. statement and the one from Paducah had a 25 cent transaction charge and the one from Nashville didn't. And I'm like, well, this is strange. So I called US Bank. And U.S. Bank says that they are charging a 25 cent transaction fee per if you use it as a debit card. I guess it costs them money if you use it as a debit card instead of credit card, whatever. So anyway, I was like, what? Because it doesn't happen to the one in Nashville. And the guy said, yeah, well, we're testing this in different markets. I was like, testing what? And they said the charge, the 25 cent charge. I said, well, why? Why would you put a 25 cent charge to use this as a my debit card as a debit card? And this is what he said on the phone. I kid you not, because other people are doing it. And of course I went haywire. Like, I'm like, 
So in other words, they were simply charging the 25 cents because they could and other people were. And and of course, I did did not live long, right? I mean, like people don't want to pay 25 cents for using the car anyway. um, But it's that kind of attitude where you think what, I mean, like, are you recouping costs? But the guy literally said, because we can. And other people are doing it. And I was like, wow. I was like, is this recorded? I did. I was like, it says this is recorded. Is this recorded? Like, did you really say that? And so the frustrating thing comes out is that that means that the bank was simply just trying to make money because they could. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's terrible. And, And we see that a lot in the world. And you certainly don't want the church to mimic the ways of the world. And so, yeah, you get righteously you know, like, could you imagine giving a tithe and then, you know, the church treasurer call and be like, yeah, we added 4.5% transaction fee. Yeah. Right. Like that'd be terrible. That would be absolutely awful. Absolutely awful. And I agree. I mean, that's, and you're right. We do see this in, in the world all the time. You know, people just add on fees because yeah, they, they take can. advantage of you because they can. And the church because probably they can. could, you know, I mean, in the long history of the church, we've seen this. And that's why sure. Jesus, I think, is so angry, you know, selling yeah. indulgences, the Catholic yes. church to raise money. I mean, like, you know, it, it, we got to be careful in that we, we are, we are, you know, we are God's representatives of reconciliation. Yes. And the church definitely has to be that. So, yes, again, yes. I would be and right. We, and we should church. operate different than the rest of the world. We should right. operate um, how we handle our business differently than, than what the world handles its business. Cause it, the world's trying to take advantage of people and we're trying to love people and help them where they are instead of trying to take advantage of them. So Kip asked this great question at the end of this historical setting. Why do you think John put the story first? Yeah. Like I said, I think it's just because I think Carolyn Lewis there, I just think she got that right. I mean, I think it's, it's a way of highlighting the tension. It's a Let's get her gone. We've had, right. um, you know, we've had the John the Baptist. We've had Jesus as the Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. We've had him. Well, and so it kind of goes in with the the six water pots. If they represent the law or whatnot, yes. and if wine represents grace, there's going to be this conflict. Now and let's we're doing something new. We're doing something yeah. new. And and you know everybody loves to do change. Everybody loves change. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's the thing we look forward to the most, right? right. <laughs> change oh oh gosh okay so so yeah i think that it flows again if we think about the way that john structured his story not necessarily chronological but to move the point of the story along had john the baptist we had the the water into wine taking from we're doing something new going from the old to something new and now setting up the conflict between the old and the new um it just it moves the flow of John's writing along. So now we have comparing scripture with scripture, unless you have anything else in historical setting. Okay. So comparing scripture with scripture, what did you pull out of that? Okay. So I guess I just took some notes here or there, mm-hmm. um, but I think I got a lot. I don't know. Um, so uh, Kip brings up the fact that uh, uh, second paragraph, Jesus drives the animals out of the temple overturns the money changers tables and demands the end of bullying and selling he is essentially announcing that this way of relating to god with the purchase of sacrificial animals has come to come to an end there is no need for this anymore and i think that's right because i think that's what john is setting up in chapter one where you know this is the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world and all this jazz and then by the end of the gospel jesus institutes himself as a passover lamb 
And again, this is what people would accuse me of being Pauline in my theology. But again, I think that's right. So there we go. Like, you know, um, John is is purposely putting Jesus Christ down as a sacrifice in some way, shape or form, whatever it does, whatever it accomplishes uh, in the book of John. John is intent on making sure that people know that Christ is the suffering Messiah. So in John, you hear Jesus saying things like the son of man must suffer, must die, must be raised again. It's not like a, it wasn't an accident. And so um, again, I've gotten feedback, negative feedback about that from some encounter people, but I don't know how else to read it. Like the purpose of John was to say, here's a sacrifice. And Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And, and I think Kip says it right here, uh, whether, whether the implication is meant there or not, I don't know. I don't know how else you read it. Um, and so then, and then it, in that next paragraph, I, I think that mm-hmm. as hard as it is for us to accept Jesus Christ as a willing sacrifice for something, it was equally as hard for the, the Pharisees and the religious establishment because they were not looking for a Messiah that died. Correct. So, I mean, I get why they didn't. I might not have. I'm pretty sure I probably wouldn't. Sure. Um, I'll stop there and let you point in. I've got one more thing after that, but it's kind of a not necessarily directly tied to the section. Right. The I like the Malachi. It says Malachi is by no means prophesying an easy arrival of the Messiah, but an arrival that will undoubtedly shake things up, even what is happening in the temple. And I, I think that's exactly what the Jews were looking for is they were looking for this Messiah that was going to come in and just uh, be basically the overlord. They were going to take over, that they were going to raise up an army, that they were going to drive out the Romans, that they were going to bring peace to the Jewish nation and, and set them up as an earthly kingdom. And what Jesus is doing is not at all not that. what they were expecting. <laughs> this is not this is not it. Um, in fact, he came in and started this conflict with the established authority um, for the Jewish nation, telling them, hey, you know, this is the old, we're doing something new, and and this is not what they expected. So I agree. I would have a hard time, you know, if I was that steeped into the old culture and tradition and understanding of, of who the Messiah sh- was supposed to be or what we thought the Messiah was supposed to be. And then you got this guy coming in doing all this stuff that you did not expect and you don't understand. Um, yeah, I would, I would have a hard time believing and understanding what was, what was going on and just the challenging of the Jewish leaders. Cause as a Jew, um, these were people that you were to respect for their authority and their decision-making and, and he's not at It's kind of crazy when all <laughs> yeah, of a sudden you're like running them yeah. in their face, all these institutions don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. I don't know how we would relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> No, I can't imagine imagine. in our day and time. I can't imagine how we would understand that at all. But then he gets into the destroying the temple um, and just how they didn't understand that it was about him that he was saying that it wasn't about the building. It was about him himself that destroy it in three days. He's going to raise it up. Of course, we know that was his foretelling of the resurrection but i also like how kip i I didn't think about this till he did this how he really brought in um the corinthian and ephesian writings about how that then infers that the church is no longer the building but the people 
and that as the people of God, that Christ is now dwelling in us. So we're supposed to go out and continue sharing this message of Christ that we are now physically the church, um, which is really important for us as reformed folk (laughs) that it is, we are the church. Yeah. And you get the idea that idea kind of comes from Acts chapter one, I guess, 17, 18, whatever it says, yeah. or actually where it, uh, Luke begins his past or that book by saying in my former book, Theophilus, I mm-hmm. wrote to you all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Yeah. But the implication was that it moved on through the acts of the apostles and right. that we then become the church and we become the hands and feet of Christ is, you know, the body of Christ and the living mm-hmm. temple, which, you know, yeah, so it's important. Absolutely. And that's what I that's what I had in there. I his discussion question on this really made me think. Yeah. So that was the thing that I was gonna get yeah. into that okay. really well, have jump to into that because there was some really interesting stuff in that discussion question. Yeah. So in the discussion question, I mean, one of the things he brings up, like, does the placement of ATMs and churches remind you of a marketplace? Yeah. Yes, they're done for convenience, but should everything be convenient when it comes to church? No. No. <laughs> okay. And here's another thing. If I see another church name relevant, I'm going to knock down a church sign because we're not. Like, I know there's this push to be relevant or to be, we're not relevant. There's nothing relevant about a Jewish man dying 2,000 years ago to save your soul. It is right. not relevant. Like, turning the other cheek, not relevant, right? Like, Picking up your cross and following, not relevant to this community, to this world, to this culture. And the only way, it's just not relevant. And so, um, of course, I'm, I'm a snob and I, you know, I'm a big liturgical worship person and, and very geared toward the spiritual disciplines, which are not relevant <laughs> to this culture. Right. And, and I You're hate right. the fact that, that we try our very best in our worship services. That was a conflict that I've had. Uh, in church when we merge churches with uh, the Grace Covenant Church. And this is no knock. This is probably more style than anything. But um, like my worship services were never designed to be efficient. That was the term that was thrown around a couple of times. It's more efficient to do this here, here, and here. It's like, I don't care about efficient. I, I'm not here for efficiency. Wow. And so that was a thing that kind of started. I was like, well, you know, I, I was leaving. So I was like, I'm not making a big deal out of this. But then I realized a lot of times we simply, we gather together our worship services for the sake of efficiency, like when to stand, when to sit down, or like, when should the children's service be or whatever? And I'm like, who cares about efficient? It's, it doesn't have to be efficient. It needs to be purposeful. Yes. Not efficient. Right. And and I, I agree with this point because we have made in our current culture, like how you said it wasn't relevant because we're not supposed to be part of the world. We're supposed to be separate from the world. Um, we have made the current culture, our, our worship time about a time for us. It's about a time where we get together and almost worship us. And we forget that this is not a time for us, that this is a time for God. This is a, a place where we're supposed to gather as this fellowship of believers and give glory, honor, and praise, thanksgiving to the almighty creator, that it's not really about us and making it efficient. I like how you said that because making it efficient is, 
is more about us than it is about giving the glory and honor to who God is, uh, this amazing creator of everything. So I've made this like not convenient. Yeah, no. So I've made this tactic with myself in life that if if I'm on vacation and I need to find a place to go to church, I will not go to a church that's named an adjective or an adverb. So (laughs) those are off my list because I know I'm not going to appreciate it as much as I am, you know, Mount Zion Presbyterian. I'm going to let you know. Anyway, right. Proper nouns. Stick with proper nouns. (laughs) Your church. Okay, I'm a snob. Nobody get mad at me for that. that. This is just okay. my you, opinion. It's it's your opinion and it's okay. But <laughs> I, I agree. I don't think everything should not be convenient. Um, because again, it's not about us. It's it's about it's about God. It is totally about God and giving glory and honor to his name. And and no, not everything that we do in church should be a convenience um for, for ourselves because we shouldn't be gathering for ourselves. We should be gathering for God. Yep. So the witness of the church, now that we've, now that we've, uh, vented, I've vented, vented and, and probably made some people mad. We're really, no. so let me say this too. Like oftentimes, like I'll get, I went to a Methodist church one time because I was like, I really want to hear the Lord's prayer today, but it was one of those Methodist churches that were completely contemporary. Right. And that happens every once in a while. But at the same time, I'm not snob enough to know, like sometimes the worship is right. And, and even if it is a church that's geared toward relevancy in the, in the, I get why they're doing it. I mean, it is relevant to your spiritual life and your soul. I can say that it's in worship. I can still worship. There's always something that confronts my snobbiness or confronts my, you know, and, and, I, and I do learn. So there's the caveat there. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Okay. No, you're good. You're good. Okay. So the witness of the church, what do we got going on there? I appreciate everything that he wrote in here. I do very much like the uh, the story that he ended this section with. Yeah. It was very good. Um, one of the uh, I, I would I would caution again. I'm I'm a little bit of a snob. Like I, I understand that we the people are the church, um, but I also buck up against the idea that church buildings don't matter, or sanctuaries don't matter, or symbolism doesn't True. matter. There's something every single church, at least probably every single Cumberland Presbyterian church, when it was when it was built, there was a time in which the presbytery called elders or called, uh, you know, fellow pastors and people came to that church and dedicated that building and that land for the use of holiness and for the Mm -hmm. proclamation of God. And I think it's kind of like when um, Solomon dedicated the temple. He acknowledged in the dedicatory prayer that one temple could not contain God, but it did contain God. It had God in it. And so like one in the same time, we're praying that this place is used for the edification of believers for generations and generations. It's important. Just like your home, we t- whatever it was a month ago, we had, uh, we talked about home and how mm-hmm. homes form us and they shape who we are and the experiences become memories become safe places i think buildings do that too um, i agree so i don't want to explain that uh, but at the other hand that certainly is not nor should our ministry be contained at a church and i think that's no. what, what he was trying to get to i i agree yeah your ministry should not be just contained within the four walls but there is something special about walking into a place that is just solely dedicated to the worship and glory of God. There's just, 
there is a peace and a calming that I get when I walk into a sanctuary that I don't get anywhere else. I mean, I love my house. Um, I, I love, I love it when it's quiet (laughs) in my house, but you know, there's just something special about walking through the sanctuary doors, just the smells and the air and the feel of the place, um, that you can't get anywhere else. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yes. We need to be the church. Yeah. But there's also something very special about church books. And if we talk about the people of God as the family of God, in the, I mean, the reason why Christians or religions in general understand the importance of family is because that's where you learn to become you. Like, you know, you know, Lord of the Flies or some of these other things, you know, like when you're not yeah. outside of a structured environment where there's moms and dads and roles and you can tend to, but in the church, like one of my sweetest, uh, an elder that I had who I deeply loved and I got on her nerves and she got on mine at her funeral. Uh, when I was preparing for the, the eulogy, the thought came to my mind, the way we battled, the way I apologized to her or the way she apologized to me when she was very, almost like Jesus, very stout about something she believed was right or wrong or pushed me, or I pushed her, and I thought I couldn't get that in the world. There had to be a place where that came in, mm. and, and that came in because we were at church. Like, right, if we were in the world, and somebody challenged me on something, I'd be like, all right, see you later. But when you're at the church, you're at the building, you're you're functioning uh, that way, then the church becomes your your dinner table. It becomes where you were told to do your chores. It's where you learn what your gifts are to contribute to the family. And yeah. so, yeah, I think that's the other way that we think about the family of God and the building and, and our home and all that good stuff. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's important since you're talking about you and the elder, that it's really important that we also point out with Kip, he wrote here that faith is a lifelong journey and learning is a lifelong right. process, that this is, this is not a one and done. You just don't walk into a church building and give your life to God and, you know, life is good. This is a a process of understanding how the family of God works, how your relationship works, how your gifts work with those that are around you. Um, and and it doesn't stop. It just keeps on going, um, because God is everywhere in all things at all times. And I do really like this, this story. Um, but I really love how Kip ends this section. Because he was talking about how, like with you and your elder, that all of your encounters with God are special and unique, whether it's your buttonheads, whether it's your apologizing to each other, whether it's your ordering coffee at your favorite coffee shop or, or sitting down to have a lunch with a friend, whatever it happens to be that all of these encounters, God is there and in them all the time. It's not just on Sunday mornings. And that's something that too. I think we talked about this last week a little bit that in our culture, we have created like these silos that your spirituality only exists within the church building. And it's, and that's not true. It is who you are. You are a child of God. You are this beautiful gift, this son, this daughter of, of God. And how do you interact every day with people that shows that you are a child of, of the King? How do you do that? Well, 
I'm not taking over. I think, I think the, this is a really great illustration uh, that he brought in here because everything mm-hmm. we were just talking about is what Kip ends with on that applying the scripture with that, uh, with that illustration. Um, where eh, starts in the second paragraph at the end of the third book, Aslan meets Lucy and Edmund mm. at the edge of the Eastern Sea and tells them that this will be their last trip to Narnia. Lucy is distraught at the prospect of not seeing the beloved lion again, but he reassures her that she will see him in her own world. When she is surprised that Aslan is present in her world, he tells her that the whole reason for bringing her to Narnia for a time was so that coming to know him here, she would recognize him more easily there. Next paragraph. Isn't that a great image of the church? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's... Yes, it is. And, and, I, and I think there's something about Again, even though the church is not a building, there's something about coming to a place, a physical place, mm-hmm. with people for the purpose of learning who you are, what you are, who God is, how God works, and then going back into the world and then yes. being able to see God better. Yes. Or display God better. Mm-hmm. So I like that. that- you did a good job there. See us, Lewis. Preachers, you can never go wrong. No, C.S. Lewis is amazing. <laughs> it's that it's that I think the Latin for it was a, a Mago Day. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the Latin being in the image? Yeah, that you are a reflection, you are an image, you are a, a image bearer to the world. And the image that you bear is that of Christ. And how do you bear that image to other people in the world? How do you share that? How do you recognize it? Um, or as Lucy here in this illustration, because she was in Narnia and steeped in it for so long, she got to be able to see Aslan outside of Narnia in the world around her. And that's what we should be doing as we come together to worship and to share with one another and learning more about Christ and learning about what that be means to be an image bearer. When we walk outside of the church walls, where do we see God? Where do we see Christ and other people? How do we represent God? How we represent Christ to other people? These are all important, important questions that, you know, each one of us, I think, has to ask ourselves. How are we being the image bearer? And how do we see the image? Yeah, how do we see the image? I I did one of of my favorite poems. I had to bring it up because I I memorized it years ago, but. Sure. Early onset. (laughs) Comes in place. Anyway. Stop. (laughs) Elizabeth Browning, um, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Like, and I think that's what the church does is trains us to see. Um, and I know trains us to see God. I know when I was 16, 17, I didn't see God from 18 after my conversion, especially till now, you know, I try to practice seeing God and ask him like Kip does here uh, i think he mm-hmm. says in here you know um you, you know you 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 see god you clearly you just learn to see his workings and and i think that's that's important i think that's what we do yeah um, absolutely i love how he ended how he ended this whole section and it's a and it's a great i mean there's a great to do question to ask yourself if you're if you're teaching this at the end of this but this last paragraph he says but here's the truth 
You are the body of Christ and you live out your faith in the regular and mundane activities of work, school, family life. Yes, volunteering and helping others is important, but so is your mere presence in the lives you encounter. We are all called as ministers and we carry out that call in every facet of our lives, being the church, the temple in the world. I love that. That is a beautiful summary of what we should be as the children of God. We are the representatives to the world and it's not in those fantastical moments. I challenge most of you. Do you remember what your preacher preached on last week? Probably not, but you remember how the person at the supermarket acted towards you. You remember how that conversation took place when you had dinner with your waitress, waiter, whoever, those are the things that you remember. Those are the moments we we think for whatever reason that it's got to be this grandiose, amazing thing. And it's not, it's about the relationship. It's about the conversation. It's about the ordinary everyday things, the everyday happenings and how we represent and, and what we show and how we see other people. You know, if all you see is this angry, crotchety old person that's mad because you took their spot or you had taken too long or whatever, um, and you don't recognize Christ in them for whatever is happening, um, you know, then you've missed, you've missed the point. I think so. Yeah. At that moment. Well, so. That's all I got. How do you display? Yeah. How do you display the church in your life during this week? It looks like I'm going to be Jesus to my neighbor because she needs her yard or her driveway shoveled. So it looks like, yeah, it looks like that might be how that works this week. Sure. I'll, I'll wear my, uh, I might wear my robe, maybe a cross. Presence (laughs) of Christ. I don't know, but there you go. But I mean, I think that's something you do is like yeah. in the same way that you can see God working, hopefully then you become aware of needs around you where yeah. the ministry of the church can help. Yeah. Somebody told me one time and it sticks with me in those hard moments when people cut me off in traffic. Um, I might, my life, the way I live my life might be the only Bible somebody ever reads. Yeah. So is that a St. Francis thing? Preach the gospel at all I don't, times. I don't remember. Use words. Yes, yeah. yes, that is a Saint Francis, um, and it's and it becomes almost a daily mantra when you really allow that to penetrate into your life. It's it's a beautiful thing yeah. how we represent God in just the ordinary everyday. So go this week. Have a beautiful week. An amazing week. Um, be safe if you have some really nasty weather like oh, we're right, getting today. Safe. Yeah, be safe um, and go with peace. Go in peace, serve the Lord. Amen. Leo says bye too. Bye, Leo. <laughs> bye, guys.